you can explore an exclusive collection of case law at Decisis Law Reports. Browse a comprehensive collection of nearly 14,000 reports of Irish legal judgments delivered since 2011. Visit decisis.ie to find out more. Hello and you're very welcome to episode 53 of The Fifth Court, a podcast on legal affairs presented by myself, Peter Leonard Barrister. And myself, Mark Tottenham Barrister and editor of Decisis Law Reports. Mark, good to see you as always. And last week, you will recall, we had a fascinating discussion about the role of arbitration in the world of sport. Colleagues Aoife Farrelly and Susan O'Hearn came in to join us. Both have incredible pedigrees when it comes to sports arbitration. Aoife with the GAA, Susan with rugby and the court of arbitration for sport in Lausanne. That was a really, really good interview. Yeah, very interesting. Okay, and went down very well with our colleagues. A lot of people talked to me about that one and uh, really found it very, very interesting. Well, today we are very much back in the day-to-day real world of law and the courts point out a legal practitioner who hasn't had at some stage in their career to rely on the support of a town agent. And you'll be doing well, Mark. Yeah. Am I right in that? You certainly are. And we are delighted to be joined by the Managing Director of Peart Solicitors, Solicitor Valerie Peart. In another venture, Mark, we had the pleasure of interviewing her brother, Michael, who recently retired from the Court of Appeal. We talked very fondly about the family farm and their wonderful legal tradition. And Valerie has stepped into the breach now. And we're really yeah. looking forward to talking and to her about this. The firm's been going for 140 years 140 this year. 140 years. Wow. Wow. That's, that's what you'd call a long time, isn't that it? certainly is. Absolutely. Well, let's go now to three cases from Decisis that you have identified. In our first case this week, an order had been made to deport a Nigerian national in 2016 who had lived in Ireland since 2007. He had been in a long-term relationship and was accepted to be the father of three Irish-born children. He claimed that deportation would be a breach of his rights and those of his children. The state argued there was a lack of evidence of any meaningful relationship with the children. Okay, curious case. This is the case of Odom versus the Minister for Justice and it went to the Supreme Court and the Chief Justice gave the leading judgment in that case. Yeah, so he, he'd been in the States since 2007. He had actually undergone a marriage ceremony, but accepted that it wasn't a lawful marriage ceremony. It was sort of a ceremony, but didn't follow the proper statutory uh, requirements. There were three children born, and it, it has to be said, there was a sort of a question mark over his parentage in the, the sense that his name wasn't on two of the birth certs. And on the other birth cert, it gave his home address as in Nigeria rather than Ireland. In any event, by 2016, he was no longer living with the uh, the mother of the children and the state sought to deport him. He said, and, and it's important to point out that his three children were also co-applicants in this judicial review. He said that it was a breach of his private and family rights to deport him and of their family rights, uh, their, their rights to the company of their father. The problem was that there was very little evidence that he ever saw the children. And it wasn't that he hadn't been given the opportunity. It was something that had been raised at various stages. You know, did he have any ongoing involvement with their education, with their upbringing. And although he stated that he did, there was no kind of evidence grounding it. And um, so in the High Court, they upheld the deportation order and the Supreme Court uh, affirmed that, although it should be said that it was by that stage it was moot because he had obtained leave to remain in the country. 
Okay, wow, very interesting. Let's move to our second case. A purchaser of land sought to sue a vendor for breach of contract. Part of the land was vested in a squatter in 2006 after the sale in 2005, and the purchaser claimed that the vendor had failed to provide good marketable title. So what happened here, Mark? This is the case of Atlantis Developments Limited versus Considine, and this is a high court decision of Mr. Justice Mulcahy. Yeah, so the purchase took place in 2005. Obviously, this was was a time of rising land prices, the, the peak of the Celtic Tiger. The sale closed in 2005, and then very soon afterwards, a neighbouring landowner claimed that they had obtained possessory title of a part of this land, and they brought a Section 49 application to the Registrar of Titles. Now, obviously, this is around the time that land prices are starting to, to go the other way. And the curious thing here was that the purchaser did not challenge the squatter's rights to the application for possessory title. But they then turned round and sued the vendor, saying that they had they had a covenant for good marketable title. They hadn't provided it because, look, a squatter has, has obtained title to the land. When it came to court, Mr Justice Mulcahy looked at the facts underlying the possessory title application and said, you could have challenged that. The, the purchaser, who was obviously in a position to challenge it at the time of the, the, the possessory title application, didn't challenge it. That the facts certainly suggested that they could have successfully challenged it and that it was not fair effectively to go against the vendor in circumstances where they had effectively sat on their hands and not challenged the possessory title application. Okay, very good, very good. Okay, so our final case today... A member of On Garda Shea had forwarded some graphic material to some colleagues in a WhatsApp group. What's all this with the WhatsApp groups? Mm. Uh, we had a recent case that involved a WhatsApp group with the On Garda Shea as well. The mm. Norwich Pharmacal Order? Oh, of course. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. Just anyway, just it, it's, it's stuck in the mind. This led to his phone being searched pursuant to a criminal search warrant. The DPP decided not to prosecute, but the commissioner sought to rely on the same material in disciplinary proceedings. This is the case of Highland versus the Commissioner of Ongarda Siakona. And this is a Court of Appeal decision from Ms. Justice Unani Rafferthick. Yeah, so the um, the member of Ongarda Siakona, he was in a WhatsApp group with his own colleagues and he posted some material that he said he'd received somewhere else and hadn't looked at before posting on. But in any event, it appears to have included uh, images of a graphic sexual nature sufficiently serious that a criminal warrant was issued to search his phone. A file was sent to the DPP and the DPP decided not to prosecute for whatever reason. But obviously the commissioner felt that this was sufficiently serious to try and discipline the guard in question. And they sought to rely on the same material on foot of the search warrant. Now the legislation underpinning the search warrant specifically says that the material can be used either in criminal prosecutions or in prison discipline. But it doesn't extend to Garda discipline. And the commissioner was trying to tried to argue, well, look, you know, it clearly this is evidence that we have of wrongdoing in the part of a member of our force. That there are very good reason to to discipline somebody who gets involved in this kind of thing. But whereas the High Court held with the Commissioner of, uh, of the Guards, the Court of Appeal said no, that search warrants are issued for a very, very particular purpose. And in this case, they couldn't extend it to the purpose that they were seeking. Okay, so interesting civil liberty style judgment there yeah. from Judge Neil Raffertick. Okay, back shortly with Valerie Peart. Silence in the fifth court. So we are very pleased to be joined in studio by Valerie Peart, 
who is the principal of Peart Solicitors and Town Agents, who will be familiar to many people, certainly in the Law Library and probably elsewhere in the country. Peart is a family firm dating back to 1883. Valerie has been working there since 1974, when she started working there with her father, Dennis Peart. She qualified as solicitor in 1980. And then in 2002, I think it was, after her brother Michael was elevated to the High Court, she took over as principal of the firm, which she now runs with her husband, Gerard Wade. So, Valerie, thank you very much for joining us here in the Fifth Court. Well, thank you for having me. It's actually quite a, quite a treat to, to look back on, on one's, one's career, I think. And this was an opportunity to have a little bit of a, a look back and a, and a look forward as well. You mentioned, you know, as, as principal of a family firm, I'm very conscious of of all that has gone before because we are here for 140 years. It seems ridiculous. Mm. And and obviously I hold a responsibility to make sure it keeps going for another. Sure. How many? How many years? So yeah. so I do appreciate the role that I have, custodian for now, I suppose. And do you know how, how it came to be set up back in 1883? Was ah. it just a solicitor's firm or was yeah, the concept of a town it, agent there in those days? I think it was a, it was probably a solicitor's firm back then. It was my great-grandfather and his daughter married my grandfather, who was John R. Peart. John R. Peart also was a solicitor. He was originally a barrister, actually. And he crossed the floor, became a solicitor back in the day. I don't know when. And then my father also Dennis Peart uh, became a solicitor and it was really in my father's era, you know, but it was a solicitor firm in 1883. We hang on to that 140 years with great pride. But it was dad really who saw town agency as a business as opposed to, I suppose, a facility for country solicitors to have colleagues in Dublin looking after work for them. And he would be in the central office and he would have other colleague friends sitting with one or two you know, files belonging to country friends of theirs. Maybe they'd been in college together. And dad saw this as he he really enjoyed that role. You know, he enjoyed representing the colleague solicitors as their representative in Dublin, which I suppose is what a town agent is. So he built it as a as a business and it became, well, it's we have 850 solicitors now who on our books, you know, and we're quite proud of that because we are their representatives in Dublin. And, and was the firm always on the keys? I mean, was it sort of lo- located conveniently to be a town agent? Originally, it was in Stevens Green. And I think very quickly, Dad realised that the distance mattered and that we needed to be beside the four courts. So he moved up, I don't know when it was, probably in the 60s sometime, moved on to Ormond Quay and then we moved down Ormond Quay a bit more and spread ourselves around and now we're in, we've been in 24, 26, up Ormond Quay for a long time. Valerie, can I come in there? And uh, no, it, like, it is lovely to meet you, it really is. And, you know, we're aware of your, your family's great tradition in the legal profession. And I'm just curious about you yourself when you were, you know, a younger person, you know, was there any desire to go off and join the circus or go to Hollywood or anything like that? Or was it always law or did it have to be law? Was that the family family profession? No. No, so, not so, at all. So. Not at all. No. I mean, the office was always part and parcel of our lives. We knew that's where our dad went off. We knew he had a great work ethic, but he had a good family life as well. Good work-life balance, I think, ahead of his time, really. And, and he didn't have the language around work-life balance, but he achieved it, I, I think, you know. There was no transitionary work experience in those days, so it was a given that in the summer I'd go in. And my sister also, actually, who became a teacher, you know, we'd go in and we'd work in the summer, get some pocket money for July and June. We enjoyed that. What I really loved about that, however, was that I loved to see Dad in his professional capacity, you know, whereas up to then he, we'd see him at home doing, he was a great woodworker and a great electrician and he was always had a project. 
Whereas I saw him in his professional capacity dealing with his staff and his clients. And that was a new perspective on my father, I suppose, for me. But it wasn't a foregone conclusion. I was actually going to be a teacher myself. And up until about fifth year, always going to teach, definitely not going into the family business, not interested, didn't occur to me. And somewhere between fifth and sixth year, I did some kind of a loop the loop and applied for law in UCD. I don't remember the process, but I know, oh, I actually am going to do law. And I applied so for law. So that's what you did in college, a law degree? I did. I did a BCL in, in a law degree. And, and I actually qualified as a solicitor prior to the very end of my law degree. So I was a solicitor first because of whatever way the exams all went. So in 1980, when I hadn't quite concluded, and I know that Professor Brady was the dean of, of the legal faculty at the time, wrote me a letter telling me at, if at any stage I wanted to conclude or complete my BCL, I could do that. But I was now ready to qualify. And in 1980, two important things happened in my life. I qualified as a solicitor, got my parchment, but I also married the love of my life, Jared Wade, which is how come we also have Wade in our in our name. And so it seemed to make sense that I, like I now had a mortgage, I had a house, I had a new married life to, to begin and to be sitting around to do more exams when I actually was already a qualified solicitor. For me, you were up and running at that I stage. I was up and running. I had been working in the town agency since 1974, as you've said, and this was my day job. And I loved it, you know, and I loved the town agency element. And, and can, of I, can I, Mark, sorry, I know you were dying to get in there, Mark, mm. but just can I just stick with this mm. just for a second? And the late 70s, UCD in the late 70s, oh, yeah. we love these stories, Mark, of kind of college days and salad days and all that sort of stuff. And like, who was, who were classmates back in those days? Well, Valerie. I had an interesting time because in those days you could, you could do your law society studies simultaneously with your BCL studies and you were an apprentice as well. So I didn't spend a huge amount of time hanging around in Belfield because I had a bicycle that took me from my Belfield lectures. You know, there weren't very many hours of lectures. So then I would cycle into town and do a half a day's work in the office, which was expected of me by my father, who, who loved having me come in, of course. And then I'd have evening lectures in Earlsford Terrace, as it was then, because Black Hole Place hadn't been acquired by the Law Society yet. So I was busy buzzing around so, on a so bicycle. you weren't hanging out all day in I Hartigans across the road wasn't. or anything like that? No, oh, no. I have to say, Hartigans is not somewhere that I got to go to much at okay. all because <laughs> I was far too busy trying to do it all at the same time, you know, and get there eventually in 1980. Qualified, moved in, and then, of course, family life took over. So even as I was a solicitor in the firm, I, I suppose... It wasn't a foregone conclusion that I would be a solicitor. It wasn't a foregone conclusion that I would be my father's succession plan either. Whereas you might think in a family business that that's really where you're, I need you, you know, next generation coming. Because I had Michael in the business. Michael was about seven or eight years older than me, my, my brother Mark that we've mentioned. And so he he was already there. So I, I had this this rather nice luxury, I suppose, of choosing to be a solicitor, choosing to be in Pearce. But then in 1982, we had our first child, Caroline, and we had Caroline in 1984. Neve came along. So we now had two small children. And I very quickly realized that this maternity leave lark and then heading back in, you know, and it just wasn't for me. So I think Jerry and I between us realized and made a choice then that I would leave Peart's and set up my own practice locally. And so I had a quite a lengthy break from Peart's, never detached. 
constantly went in. And you're going to have to tell us more about this. Like, was that a bit of a rupture in the family? Like, was there a kind of a gathering around the dinner table or anything here? <laughs> no, Valerie, because... or people, you know, okay, so why did you want to break break away and it, make your, do your own thing? It wasn't that I wanted to wake away from Pierce. It was more that I wanted time to rear the children, but not lose being a solicitor. And I didn't want to, I wanted to rear them myself. I wanted to be at home with them. And I understand the challenges of women in law, which, you know, is a we could have a whole interview in itself about that. But I suppose I made a choice with my husband. He's an accountant and he had his own practice. He was working working in offices in a building, several different places. Jerry Jerry worked in town and eventually out in Stillorgan and out in Fox Rock and various premises. And ultimately I shared offices with him and I had my room where I did my work. We had a room in the house where I was able to, lucky, we were lucky with the house that we were able to have an office at home. And we had a lady that would mind the children when I needed them, but principally I was there looking after them and, and we laugh, Neve laughed sometimes. She'd come with me. They'd all come with four. You know, they would all come with me sometimes and I'd go and I'd be making a will and we'd be visiting someone who'd be maybe a contemporary of mine and they'd have children too. So all the children would be quite happy playing and I could do my work because I understood that people couldn't always necessarily get a way out, certainly not in the 80s, you know, get a way out and have a, an appointment with their solicitor. That wasn't always easy. So I was a sort of a neighbourhood solicitor who was happy to do house calls or they'd come to me. We, felt, I, I suppose, was quite I, relaxed about it. I suppose I'm just curious. You felt you couldn't do that working in the family farm? No, because farm. I'd have to go into town every day. Okay. That was the big difference. That was difference. the thing. Okay, going the into town. The big difference right, was going okay. into the office every day. It wasn't the day. nature of the work or anything like that? Not particularly. It was that, no, because I would have been doing conveyancing and probate and very much something that adapted well, you know, to working from home. And I wanted to be at home as much as possible. But I didn't want to lose my professional practice. So I kept up all my CPD. I, I was right there doing everything I needed to do. But we chose to keep it small so that I could also, and Jerry you carried the lion's share of the household, I suppose, because he was an accountant with his own practice. And it never it never struck us in a fa- as a family, I don't think, that Michael wouldn't be the next peert in, in situ when my father retired. And even after he retired, that, that was the case. But I went in as locum. I covered their holidays. I, I never detached from them, really. I mean, we had some very good childminders that helped us out with at home. And I, don't get me wrong, it wasn't a carload of kids and me trying to work. You know, we we'd, we had a very professional childminder yeah, also. And you have to do that. And, but, and, and you mentioned your brother then suddenly, yes. you know, so, so I mean, we know he is the poster boy in the solicitor's profession as the first, was he the first solicitor to be appointed yeah. to the High Court? Yes, and that's why it was never, I suppose, anything that we thought could happen. Like his, his career trajectory, unless he changed career, would have been that he would have stayed in situ in Pierce until probably even now he'd be there, do you know? And so Michael put his name forward when, when the legislation changed, you know, and he's probably said this to you himself, when the legislation changed, it was not possible for a solicitor to become a judge of the High Court or, well, it was probably only the High Court at the time, I can't remember. And he put his name in and, and then yeah, got the call well, from <laughs> Minister McDool, it was at the time, where he had to detach from the family business. He couldn't be associated with a solicitor's practice at all. And we had about 10 days to hand over and he had said... And, and were you still running your own firm at yes, that stage? Yes, yeah. So. I, I was Valerie Wade's solicitor right. in Fox Rock Village at the time. And I brought it with me. You know, I brought it in. You know, in a family business, when you're asked, you don't say no. 
Obviously, you don't say no. Jerry, my husband, as an accountant, was their external accountant and had been for years. So, so we knew that Jerry fully understood the way the business worked. You know, he already had the relationships that he needed with banks and all the did their accounts for the loss side and everything. So he had a very good business understanding of how the business worked. And that, like, I don't think, I don't know that I'd have been even comfortable to to do it without him. So the two of us went in together and we're very good as a professional couple. And I think we've great respect for what we both bring. You know, he doesn't try and be the lawyer and I don't try and be the accountant. We drive separate cars. That probably shouldn't <laughs> be something we admit to, but, you know, it's something you need, that bit of separation sometimes. And we don't bring the work home. But and that has always been important to us. But one of the things that interested me is that you were shortlisted as Businesswoman of the Year. So although you describe yourself as the solicitor and him as the accountant, you clearly see Peart's as a business. I mean, and... You know, often, you know, people talk about being lawyers and they don't talk about the business side so much. I mean, to what extent are you able to kind of look at it as a business rather than sort of, a, shall we say, a vocation? Well, it is a vocation. Mm. There's no doubt about that. And I've never doubted that for a minute. However, the town agency business is a bit different, you know, to a law practice. And we do have a, a small Dublin law firm. You know, we, we, we have our own clients in Dublin. But when in 2002 we went in together, we now, you know, had a staff, you know, you, you, we had to upskill in HR matters. We had to learn, you know, it was a bit like I'd been rowing a small dinghy all my life and I was now driving a cruise ship mm -hmm. because there were now serious business issues to understand. You have to grow the business, you've got to manage it, we're, we're regulated. All of those things now, you know, became very important. And, and, and were you in any way changing the direction of the firm at that stage? At that stage, I was confident that what my father had built, what Michael had continued, was a good business model. We were satisfied that our countrywide clients, we've over, well, we, we grew it, but we now have about 850, I can't remember, there could have been 600 or so at the mm -hmm. time. But solicitors down the country need somebody in Dublin to be their representative. They need an extension of their office that they can literally, you know, call on. We look on ourselves as an extension of their office so that if you're in Sligo or Kerry or Donegal or anywhere in between. And with that, can I just ask you, uh, Valerie, yeah. I mean, we have listeners who are non-lawyers. Yeah. So when they hear the phrase town agent, will you just yeah. give us in, in, in a nutshell what, what the town agent does? Town agent is a professional service delivering augmented legal services, I guess. So if you were a client of a solicitor in, you know, Liscanner in County Clare and, and you, you want your solicitor at his desk, you don't want to hear, you know, that he's on the dart or, or, or sorry, on the train to Dublin and then on the dart or then on the Lewis and he's stuck in the forecourts all day and he can't, we won't be back. You don't want to hear that. You want your solicitor to be in his office when you need him. And whether they're the big firms in Limerick or Cork or whether it's a small solicitor in a county town, anywhere, we're there for them. And we and, I, and we consider ourselves an extension of their office as opposed to, I suppose it's, it's outsourced legal, legal services. But it's really to do in Dublin what they can't do themselves. And all of that work at the moment is centralised in Dublin and it has to be so. Town Agency began you know, maybe not to dwell too much on, on the historical thing, but it began when it was necessary to have a solicitor within three miles of the forecourts. And I'm pretty convinced that was because that was a, recognised as a, a sort of satisfactory distance on a bicycle that you could deliver 
you know, the services, as they called it, where, where if you issue a summons and then you enter an appearance, it has to be delivered back to the other solicitor and all the pleadings had to be delivered by hand. Obviously, we can do that electronically now, but the, the concept grew up at a time when you had to have an address within three miles of the forecourts. Yes, and that's where it came from. But it's much more than that now. It's it's such It's such a professional service that, you know, we find that it's so that a solicitor who who can't be there himself to get all the up-to-date information, can't go in and talk to an official in the forecourts in the central office, you know, a rule has changed or how do you get this proceedings correctly over the line and, you know, be confident that they're delivering the, the best service they can deliver. And by using, I think, a professional service like ourselves, because we work in volumes and you might never have done this kind of, mm. you know, judicial review before. Or you might never have done this kind of probate before if it hasn't come your way, you know, a solicitor outside of Dublin. Well, we have. The chances yeah. are we know what to do yes. and we, we lead them through the process. Yeah, I mean, what we see in the law library, obviously, is, mm. first of all, that you're filing papers in the central office. And secondly, w- w- very often you would attend us as counsel oh, in all of the different courts. And very often you'd see somebody with a huge stack of papers probably attending almost every barrister in the court, uh, mm. coming from Peart's or occasionally from one uh, from other firms that we won't name. Is there more to it? Is that is that the central part of the work, the attending in court and in the central office? Or is, are there other aspects that we don't see so much? Yeah, I was going to mm. say, that's that's what you can see. Obviously, yeah. we're, we're very visible in both of those mm. places, particularly attending in court. And and even through COVID, you know, we'd, we would log in on onto the virtual courts. We'd have several virtual courts set up right around the office with, you know, silence on the door because somebody would be in court. But now it's more to have the papers in the court, make sure that people turn up, make sure the barristers are there, make sure the judge can process that it doesn't get delayed because something wasn't available, you know, to the court or whatever. But the, the third leg of that stool, I suppose, of the support that we give the solicitors is all the advice that we can give them. You know, we, we our challenge as a town agent, you know, offering these augmented professional legal services is what it is, I suppose, you know, is to be up to date. You know, we have a very uh, qualified senior management team, some of whom have been with us for many, many years, and they they just, they understand what needs to be done. And what we work very hard on are our relationships with the stakeholders, mostly with the court service in particular, also with the bar, to be honest, because, you know, it's it's good if you come into a chancery list on a Monday and you see it's person up at the top, but then you know you're going to be supported. No, you, and you're, you're, likewise, I if I I've already Googled you, and I know what you look like, and I'm sitting there, and I'm hoping to goodness you're going to come. But then I know then you're there, and so we have a relationship that we we maintain. You know, we, I I, yeah. I, th- I think the work you do is invaluable, Valerie, and I think you know, I mean, you you give that extra limb to all those client firms you have around the country. What, mm. what did you say? 800 odd? That's 850 of them 850, now. 850, 850. Can I ask and you some other information? Mm. I think, is there anybody better out there to talk about maybe the challenges that a lot of those rural firms are experiencing? Because you're in contact with, with firms in Donegal, in Kerry, mm. in Waterford, in Kilkenny, in Sligo, in Mayo, and all the outreaches. And we hear in the modern era that, you know, there's a lot of corporate firms doing very well and they're recruiting and there's Mm. wonderful salaries and it's all wonderful stuff. But a lot of the rural firms are under a bit of pressure. Is that what you're experiencing in your dealings with them and finding that, you know, traditional family firms scattered throughout the country are finding things, getting staff, you know, issues, 
under pressure, the fees maybe aren't there like it would appear to be in Dublin. I don't know. Is that your experience? I think that is our experience, to be honest, you know, and I, um, as well as, you know, the, the work that I do, I also am on the Council of the Law Society. I joined that in, gosh, 15 years ago now. It seems like only yesterday, but but it, through that work, you know, I, I get a huge insight into what's going on because obviously at council on all the committees and all of the work that we do there, we spend a lot of time considering what the whole profession are dealing with. And, and I feel that my perspective, you know, as a solicitor town agent, because my clients are all these solicitors around the country, they are our clients. Yeah, we get a bird's eye view on what they're challenges are. I do think that staffing is a big issue. We like to think that they, you know, no matter what the changes come along, we'll still, well, we we know we'll still be there. We don't like to think we'll be there. We will be there. But that they look on us more and more, you know, as the staff they can lean on, the professional they can get, the expertise they're looking for, you know, and if, if they've had to downsize or merge, maybe, you know, there's a lot of Firms are merging now. I think the day of the sole practitioner is becoming less and less. It's too difficult to and to be on their own. And I do think that a lot of them, certainly in the smaller towns, you know, around the country, I think it just makes more sense and that the two firms might merge. And then what we find is that that, that firm stays with us, you know, and, and we can help them through that process only because they may now be taking on new work that they didn't do before or they've had to go after work. You know, perhaps they've had a very big client who's a, you know, a farmer and he's got lots of land and they've done all his land deals and all of that, the big stuff. And suddenly he's got a probate or he's got a, you know, he's going to go into some other line of work and he's going to to, to purchase some commercial enterprise or something because he's got to survive. And the solicitor's only ever, you know, done land deals for him and now is wants to keep the client. But we find, well, they come to us then because we can do that for them because yes. we know yeah, how to do it. With other issues we like employment contracts and that do kind it of thing? For them. Yeah, we, yeah, we don't do it, but we, we certainly give them a lot of professional advice. Don't review their documents for them, but when it comes to anything that becomes lit- litigious, you know, we will we will review their papers. So, so you're almost providing a kind of network of knowledge for... I think we probably do that. You know, yeah. we do that just inherently. We just mm-hmm. do it because we can, because we're there. And I'd never, you know, say no to it. So it's a yes, we can mm-hmm. policy, you okay. know, that we have in the office. You know, mm-hmm. Neve works with us. She knows this, you know, that it's just, if we can't do it, we know who to ask. You know, if we can't do it, we won't pretend we know. We don't mm-hmm. know. And I tell that anybody who comes in for interview and we're, we're hiring them, you know, I say, don't, you know, don't don't pretend you know because you think you're, you, you shouldn't say you don't. But, we know where to find out, you know, and, and we know how to ask and we know who to ask and we know when we need to ask. And that's all terribly important, you know, to be, be able to, to say, well, I can do it for you, but give me 24 hours and I'll get the right answer. And, and it, you know, it's, but it's a network. Mm-hmm. It is a partnership, really, do you know, of, of understanding. Mm-hmm. And I think the partnerships are important, you know, I think that... It certainly the, sounds as if you love the work. Are you, are, you, are you planning to stay there for the foreseeable future? You're... Well, I'm fourth generation peer, yeah, and I'm happy to say that. Um, I'm also happy that the fifth generation are coming. You know, uh, I do like to think that there's a life after peers. Are there many in the next generation coming after you? Or? Well, my daughter Neve is is a barrister, but working in house with right. us. Um, my son-in-law married to a different daughter, 
mm. my to, to our daughter Jenny. Um, he he's come in as our office manager now. He did project management and did a business and law degree, but he is now our office manager and just brings brings new energy. I suppose brings fresh legs, which is important. And we have staff that have been there, and they're I would think next generation. They're not my generation, you know. Mm. And I find that these younger younger brains, you know, uh, they're brave. I think they're courageous with with changes that that are coming down the track. They, they they don't look at it as a sort of you know they're going to digitize the whole court system. What are we going to do? They say, gosh, they're going to digitize the court system. That's exciting. Let's see what we can do there. You know, and and because we, as I say, we sit on the court's user groups, we have conversations constantly. We we manage that relationship really well. And there are changes. There's no doubt. Those changes are going to be a challenge not only for us but for our colleagues around the country. Some of them are going to struggle, I would think, with, you know, electronic just everything. To, just a, practi- we'll, a practical... We'll mind them. We'll a, mind them. You know, and we'll get there. And yeah. Absolutely. And mm. just, just a practical matter. I mean, we've had a massive increase in the judiciary in the last mm. decade, our last 15, 20 years anyway. A huge mm. increase. And as a result of that, that means there's more courts in action. And more, you know, issues. Has, mm. that, has that put pressure on you? Do you need extra staff? Are you trying to make bits yourselves getting from court A to court B and then down to court Z at the far end of the yes. corridor? Is yes. that, is that, is that is the reality? The I'm that. just just thinking of that kind of... Yes, it yeah. is. It is. And it, it might only be on a Monday that there's where the pressure is. You know, yes. we might need to cover 23 courts on a Monday when maybe we only had to do 17, you know, five years ago. And to have people. But what we do is we upscale our staff. We enable them. We make them, we give them the confidence. As staff of mine, because we're a solicitor firm, uh, they have a right of audience. They can go in and attend. They can be there. They don't make applications. We're not, you know, we're not doing advocacy for anybody. But we, we can certainly mind the matter until the barrister arrives. We can adjourn it if that's what's needed. We can do consents to registrars. We'll never let anything drop. If somebody instructs us to go, we'll have somebody there. Okay. And, and you know, the odd time we might have a colleague who will just come in and do a Monday for us. You know, I, I did that myself when Michael was principal and they so found... there will always be cover. That's the message that goes always out. Always be, be cover. cover. Always be cover. That we take that so seriously. That is why I get up in the morning. Do you know, we, we, we need, because we have to be there. For, for people who see, have asked us you, to be there. You get up in the morning with great joy. You can see you really love your job. Absolutely love your job, Valerie. Um, Mark, I think we're getting to that stage yes, when we have we, to ask the question. We could talk for a lot longer, but I'm afraid we've got to the stage where we have to ask you the all-important question. Have you a book or a film, or maybe both, that you'd like to recommend to our listeners? Well, I did know this question was coming because I've listened to some of your previous podcasts and you ask it every time. So I did have a think about it. And obviously anything by Maeve Binch is fine by me. But but to go a little more deeper into it, I have, I'd like to recommend an author. She's an American author. Her name is Kristen Hanna. I was introduced to her about a year and a half ago. And she wrote one, which has wrote several books, but the first one I came upon was called The Great Alone. And it was just... It was just such a superb book that I went looking for more books by Kristen Hanna and I found two more, The Four Winds. And she also wrote one called The Nightingale, which subsequently became a TV series or it might have been a TV film. I'm not sure if it was over over four parts or whatever. But what she seems to, to write about is human endeavour, mostly with very strong female leads, um, heroines, you know, who've, who have to struggle, though. And and I think I seem to be drawn to books of human endeavour, fiction or non-fiction, you know, where, where people overcome, you know, hard adversity, 
because they have it in themselves to do it and you just have to dig deep and find it and it's there and I absolutely recommend um, particularly The Great Alone it's set up in Alaska and it was very tough a settler settler family moving to Alaska was just unbelievably tough fantastic great book though thank you very much Valerie Peart for joining us here in the fifth court not at all more than welcome The Fifth Court will adjourn until next week. So that's all from this edition of The Fifth Court. We hope you have enjoyed it. Can we say a huge thank you to our guest, Solicitor Valerie Peart, for coming in and telling us all about the world of town agency and about her wonderful family firm that goes back 140 years. It's great to hear somebody who's been in in a position for so long and yet still has such a, a, a clear enthusiasm for her work. No, fantastic. Really enjoyed that interview. Anyway, before we go, I would also like to say a huge thank you to our producer, Cunnel O'Moron, and to the great Lee Brennan of the Dublin South Podcast Studios for his wonderful work in recording this show and the wonderful support he gives us. So for me, Peter Leonard. Myself, Mark Tottenham. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you soon in the Fifth Court. Never miss a vital Irish legal judgment. Check out Decisis Law Reports where you'll find a fully indexed collection of all Irish judgments delivered since 2011. Visit decisis.ie to find out more.